Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international studies, produced under the auspices of the International Studies Association and made available through ISA's Professional Resource Center. I'm Jamie Free, Associate Provost and Professor of Global Politics at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with a thoughtful and engaged teacher of international studies. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by helping IR teacher scholars explore the intricacies of practices that, for most of us, determine the professional impact we have on the world. Investing in improving our teaching practices and assessing their effectiveness are activities best done in deliberation with others navigating similar terrain. Providing fora for those conversations is one of the most consequential services an organization like ISA can provide for its members. Today's conversation is with Dr. Mizba Heider, a visiting assistant professor in the Teaching Excellence Center at the United States Naval War College in Rhode Island. She consults with faculty there and, among other things, trains instructors in trauma-informed teaching in professional military education environments. She is co-editor with Michael Murphy on a forthcoming volume, Teaching Political Science and International Relations for Early Career Instructors. Our conversation explores how MISBA leveraged the study of pedagogy into a fulfilling institutional role supporting the development of colleagues as teachers. The concept of trauma-informed teaching and how adopting it shifts perspectives on pedagogy. And specific trauma-informed teaching tactics that make a difference in both the content and the practice of IR courses. Dr. Ms. Bahir, thank you very much for coming to be part of the Teaching Curve. I'm very happy to have you here to talk about this topic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So the first question I always ask to people has to do with trying to position themselves and place themselves for all of us so we can think about how their experiences might relate to our own. So the question I ask is, who are your students? And I know you kind of have a different sort of answer to that question. Yeah, thanks. So um, because I work at teaching centers right now, which basically for anyone who doesn't know what teaching centers are, right, my my brother always likes to describe it as I teach teachers how to teach, right? And so uh, that's basically what, what the job entails, right? I do a lot of workshops, I do faculty consultations and observations, and I give faculty um, uh, quite a bit of feedback on their on their teaching as they seek it, right? Um, previously, I had worked at Notre Dame as a as a postdoc, in which I was more focused on graduate students. So right now, my my role is a visiting assistant professor at the Teaching Excellence Center at the U.S. Naval War College, and so I work with the faculty there. Um, and so the nature of the institution and the nature of of who, who's present there is quite a different context, even if the bulk of the teaching and how to teach and what 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 types of pedagogy we talk about generally are consistent from other civilian higher ed institutions. You have a doctorate in international relations. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's interesting to me that your career has uh, moved into this where you're really focused on the the pedagogy piece of that yeah talk to me a little bit about how you about that choice those that trajectory how you got where you are yeah yeah and this is where um I really think that teaching centers are such a ripe and fertile environment for PhDs to be in um and that we're we just don't know about this career trajectory enough Mm. 
Um, so at UC Irvine, which is where I did my my doctorate, um, I actually worked within this program, um, this experiential learning program called um, the Olive Tree Initiative, in which we would, you know, uh, teach students about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and then take them to the region um, over the summers. And so I had found this UC-wide grant for us to be able to uh, develop this as, as a UC-wide online course. Mm. So because the, we were expanding our program like across the UCs and, and we wanted to institutionalize the curriculum further. And so when we got the grant, part of the grant was to work with learning designers in the teaching center at UC Irvine to be able to, to develop uh, the Canvas page and the modules and the learning pathways and stuff like that. Yeah. So all of this jargon that I just used right now, I had no idea what any of that was. <laughs> and so it was the learning designers who, and I part of part of the fact of me being a graduate student, right, was that I was the one working with them the most and consulting with the faculty. So I was like the bridge yeah. between the faculty and, and the learning designers, which allowed me to learn so much about curriculum development, about how to be able to build um, Canvas, uh, not just Canvas pages, but how to think about learning outcomes and then create learning pathways toward assessment, backward course design, things like that. Right. So really learned um, a lot about pedagogy through that experience. And then it was through that that I even knew that that the teaching center even existed. Right. And then there's this um, pedagogical fellowship program that we have at UC Irvine in which um, students who are really interested in pedagogy get to take a year long series of courses that are training, like teaching us about learning science. And then we do a TA training for our specific departments. Um, and so that's how I got my hand in training. And the, this was also like around, so we were, the, um, I think, the second COVID um, cohort. And so the market, the academic market was terrible and people were losing, like getting jobs pulled from them. And I was yeah. having a lot of anxiety because I was, you know, really close to being on the market. And so then I spoke with my, my mentor where I was like, how can I be you when I grow up? And so then like that question alone, uh, like, you know, opened up pathways of, he told me this path, this career is called educational development and we have our own professional network and we have teaching center jobs and here's where you can find them. And, yeah. you know, really guided me through that process. You know, it was just really through my, my love of pedagogy, but also just some opportunities that my yeah. institution had that I was able to take advantage of and then through that finding mentors who were able to sort of guide me in that pathway and then I thought it was just going to be one teaching center job and then I was going to move on to you know more traditional academic positions which I still might but you know this has become such a fruitful pathway for me to be able to still work on my own research my yeah. own disciplinary research on IR while also being able to work on pedagogy within IR yeah. um, as well, or ped and pedagogy in general. And For so sure. it's been really fun. So, yeah, and let's talk about that. That's because one of the things that you've been able to, I don't know if you would call it specialize in, but to really dig into is this idea of trauma-informed teaching, which is yeah. becoming more and more prevalent uh, in for lots of ways of defining and thinking about how students might have experienced trauma and how to teach them even though that's the case. So talk to me first a little bit about what, what we mean when we say trauma-informed teaching. Yeah, so when we 
when we talk about trauma-informed teaching, what we're really talking about is how to be able to recognize the impact of trauma within a classroom. That's mm. very like that as a very basic sort of definition of it. But there are a variety of ways in which trauma can show up within within a classroom. For example, students can have difficulty focusing. Um, they can miss classes. They might have a fear of taking risks. They might feel this sort of sense of helplessness. Um, they might withdraw, right? And these are all effects that we're not having as faculty in the classroom, mm -hmm. right? It's not... Right. It can be due to our due, due to our content, which that's a separate issue, and and we can talk about that. But this more this um, framework is more so thinking about students as whole people, yeah. right? Students who who have experienced various forms of adversity within their lives, how that might show up within our classroom, even if it has nothing to do with what we're teaching. Yeah. So what what do you mean when you say trauma? The, the definition that I like to use is um, results from an event, series of events, or circumstances that's experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening that has, and this is the part that's most important, lasting adverse effects mm. on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Mm. So these could be a variety of different circumstances. Um, so this could, the, I, I think what we most associate with uh, trauma, it might be acute trauma or P or what we call like PTSD. There are other levels of trauma that we don't account for. Mm -hmm. So one is sort of individual identity or complex trauma. So folks call it like CTSD, right? Like complex trauma um, in which it's more like if the way that I like to think about it is like PTSD might be like a big wound, right? One thing has happened to you in which that has opened up a huge wound. Right. Meanwhile, complex trauma are just little cuts, little cuts over and over again. And they mm -hmm. might be on the same place and therefore it gets deeper or it might just be everywhere. Yeah. Right? And they're just little, little cuts that you constantly have to deal with. Um, and then the other one, which I think is the reason why we're thinking about trauma-informed, which is why I went into trauma-informed pedagogy myself, was collective trauma or continuous mm. traumatic um, stress, which is, right, we can think about the global, the continuing global 19, uh, COVID-19 uh, global pandemic. Yeah. Um, we can think about, um, particularly, you know, in 2020, the rise of discourses about the the um, about uh, Black Lives Matter, right? Um, we can uh, think about the Trump presidency, right? We can think about immigration and detention centers, right? A variety of different things and cl uh, global climate change, mm -hmm. right? There are a variety of different um, things that are going on as collectives right, that are impacting the ways in which we are experiencing our lives and connecting yeah. with one another. And for all of the latter issues that I just mentioned, these are all issues that we discuss within our IR classrooms. Yeah, right? that's a good point. Yeah, the, your, the stuff you're bringing up, if somebody experiences those things in a traumatic way, as you say, let's talk about how these things work, um, that that may impact some students very differently than other students. 
when we're bringing up climate change within within our courses, which we should be, we mm. should be talking about climate change, right? We can think through how students might be responding. There's all this anxiety, there's withdrawal, there's helplessness, right? There, these types of um, emotional responses might yeah. within the classroom. So this is where I'm talking about like where topics that we're discussing, right? Have these, have these impacts. But even when I talk with chemistry faculty, right? I'm like trauma matters in your classroom too. Because your students are still living in this world, right? They're still full human beings and they don't, they don't check their lives out the door when they enter your classroom. And so you don't know what's going on in their lives and how they might be responding to you. So for example, when students ask for accommodations, right? Let's give them the benefit of the doubt rather, uh -huh. rather than saying that they're just seeking a better grade or they're just you know trying to get out of doing work, right? Which is often the assumption that we start with. And then students have to justify. Yeah. Why not give students the benefit of the doubt? Right. And that giving students the benefit of the doubt and not putting them in a mode of being defensive, right, is not re-triggering re um, traumatic, uh, like uh, trauma responses. What tactics do you use to, to uh, attend to students' traumas in your classes? Sure. So maybe what I'll do first is I'll sort of um, talk about the various principles of trauma-informed pedagogy. Um, so first is safety. Uh, second is trustworthiness, third is choice, fourth is collaboration, and fifth is empowerment. Those are actual um, principles that are taken from healthcare, trauma-informed healthcare. Mm -hmm. so, so some of the results that we found from my, from my course was that students co-developed um, a sense of safety by engaging in respectful peer, peer dialogue on various, um, you know, religious and controversial issues um the way and then they also collaborated with one another to have a deeper understanding of the course material um it, it was all about how i structured the the learning environment so what happened was that participation was was graded i was very transparent about how it was graded mm -hmm. and then i had right after class i had my office hours on tuesdays and then on thursdays i had this thing called muddiest point hours mm -hmm. and so what that basically meant what a muddiest point means is like what's what's most confusing for students so the design of it was that this is an ungraded space in which i'm not taking attendance i don't care how much you talk i don't care if you're just there just to listen mm -hmm. right very explicit with students about that but I will just be present you can ask me anything that's confusing to you about the reading some term that I didn't cover in class that's still confusing to you which is why I did it right on Thursday so that like we've done we're done with the mm -hmm. week what is still in your mind and I actually found a lot of students would just show up just to see what what questions other students would ask sure. because they were just so interested. And what I also found was half of the time I wasn't even answering questions because students, because this was on Zoom, so students would ask a question and then I would see a student go like that. And so I was like, okay, why don't you answer the question then? And uh. then I would just sit back. And most of the time, like it was like maybe 30 or 40 minutes where I just wouldn't even speak because the students were just, you know, engaging with one another. And in the reflections that my co-authors had, um, had read, they found that students, multiple students had cited the, these particular hours as being most generative. 
right? Because to them, it was very informal. Mm-hmm. I, I was merely present, but for them, it was a way for them to be able to connect with their with their classmates. And so they collaborate, like that was a way in which they were able to collaborate with one another, which was sort of a byproduct, but the ways in which I structured it was one in which I wanted to garner safety. Yeah. I don't like the term safe space that much. I like using brave space a little bit more. Yeah. Students to be, to come out of their comfort zone. I wanted them to be uncomfortable, right? But structure an environment such that they felt okay in being, in being more uncomfortable. So right. that, that was one. Um, another thing that I did, uh, was to establish trustworthiness was that I actually did quite a bit of self-disclosure, which I know a lot of faculty have a lot of discomfort about, which I, I think it's very, very valid. Um, for me, for a religion and politics course in which I will say some of my self-disclosure might've been motivated by a tad bit of imposter syndrome in which, you know, students are looking at me being like, you're this brown woman, right? Trying to tell us how religion is supposed to matter, right? right? Like how how am I supposed to believe anything that, that you're saying? And so what I did was I was like, okay, in the first week of class, I told them, I come from a Muslim background. My parents are Pakistani. This and then this is how, and then when we talked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, I said, this is what I was taught as a child about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This yeah. is how it impacted how I've always seen the conflict. This is how I sought to educate myself beyond those narratives so that I could diversify the ways in which I seek to analyze particular issues. Mm-hmm. Right? So I did that of, of my own and I modeled that to students. But then I also didn't ask them to do it right away. I right. didn't. I, put them on the spot to have them do the exact same thing. Instead, I just put it out there. And then throughout the discussions, throughout the throughout the course, I saw that students ended up modeling that, right? They ended up saying through. So now because I'm because I come from this Hindu background, I now, you know, look at the because uh, we were talking about um, the third gender within within India, the, the hijra. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, as a, as someone who comes from a Hindu background, here's blah, 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 right? So it was really fascinating to see mm. the way in which students ended up taking on that model of self-disclosure, which I think really developed a sense of trust between me and, and the students. Because then they also saw that I wasn't an all-knowing person who just was born with these various different perspectives. I I had to work at it. Yeah. And I told them how I worked at it, how I, because because my primary learning objective was critical self-reflection, I modeled critical self-reflection to them. And I think that allowed us to be able to gain some, to gain some trust. What if your primary learning objective though, is they have to understand, I don't know, realism. They, you know, mm-hmm. in order to move beyond and take their upper level courses, they need to understand these five theories and uh, how do, how does trauma-informed teaching affect that kind of approach? Yeah, yeah. So um, 
so in terms of the the trust, right, the the trustworthiness um, doesn't just have to be with with regard to the content itself. It could also be in how you structure the assessments, right? So trustworthiness really is, I mean, um, if you know uh, TILT, which is transparency in teaching and learning or learning and teaching, um, it's basically talking about how we want to be transparent with our students, right? How we want to make sure that when we are grading, right, what are we grading for? I remember mm -hmm. we actually had this discussion um, in our panel about um, whether we should grade for, um, for grammar or not and whether grammar matters, right? So if we're not teaching students grammar, should we be grading them based on, based on grammar? And whichever side of the debate you're on, right, I'm often on the side of the debate where I'm like, it's fine. I don't care. I'm not asking, I'm like, because they, these were reflection assignments, yeah. right? So for me, them writing a research paper was not, it wasn't the, it wasn't the assessment. So therefore grammar didn't matter for the assessment itself. And therefore I didn't find it to be a skill that I needed to grade them on. Yeah. And I was transparent about that. But whenever I do have research assignments, right, in which they're supposed to give me analytical thinking and analytical writing, not only do I tell them that I'm going to grade based on grammar, but I'm also going to provide them with resources mm -hmm. on how to be able to um, to develop their grammar for the writing center or do peer review yeah. with, or something like that, right? So the ways in which we build trust and safety within the class, I think a lot of times are about the choices that we're making and treating students like adults in saying, here's the choice that I've made, here's why I've made that choice, right? And then that way students when they come to you, if they, if they have an issue, they also understand the justification behind your own choices yeah. and or are, are able to come to you with more directed requests, right? Cause they understand what your learning objective was and why and how it connects to the assessment. They're able to say, okay, based on the fact that this is what your goal is for me, mm. right? Here's my, my request. Now, if students aren't going to be that thoughtful, you can at least guide them to that process and say, yeah. I understand that you have this broader request, given the learning objective, here's what I can do for you, right? And just yeah. being really transparent with students about your process, I think builds that, builds that trust. And so in many ways, what I'm hearing are the kind of echoes of where you started with this, which was, look, you see and see students as whole people who come in with all of their, I mean, some people call it baggage, right? But all of their experiences, yeah. all of their uh, uh, previous approaches to education and your job is to uh, have some awareness, some empathy with the students in your class about how they're encountering your style as a professor, as a teacher, as an instructor and help them- Help them make sense of that, right? Absolutely. And especially if in the previous period, they just had math, yeah, right? And that math professor is making completely different choices, right? It's yeah. hard for them to be able to switch into knowing the justifications for your choices if they're not told that very explicitly. Right. And, and this so is really where the hidden curriculum comes in, right? Making the implicit explicit. Yes. Right. So if we make the implicit explicit for each for each of our courses, then when students are walking in, they know what they're walking into.
students feel very emotionally charged about their grades. It's deeply personal to them. This is what they think and is accurate oftentimes that it's yeah. going to determine the rest of their lives and they feel a lot of pressure and so for them if we can ease some of that pressure by making things more explicit for them I think that that um that that really helps um them feel a little bit more comfortable within within the learning environment such that we can then make them uncomfortable about the topics yeah because we don't want them to be uncomfortable about everything because otherwise the discomfort I then I then think is going to be misdirected yeah right um so and then the, the sort of final sort of parts of trauma-informed pedagogy are choice and empowerment so we ultimately when people when folks feel helpless and have a fear of taking risks and are in the, this avoidance stage right and stuff like that we want them to be able to make choices so my favorite thing actually is um having uh one one uh session toward the end of the class that students can have up to a vote so i would always like provide i don't it's not a free-for-all i give them choices i give right. them three choices but they vote and then ultimately they feel more like okay I had a choice in in my learning um I had students um choose the modality in which they would provide the reflections and so they could either write which is most students they they did written reflections but many students did audio and video reflections because they just found that they process better yeah. so that because again for me writing wasn't wasn't part of the assessment it was the reflection right so it's also understanding our own learning learning objectives in order to be able to see what choices we can have students make right um, and then empower them to be able to make those um to make those choices right which is ultimately i think the the purpose of an education in right. our culture is to turn out agents who feel comfortable making choices about things and and, and being right. able to be metacognitive about that, to be thinking about their processes. And so modeling that as an instructor and building that into the way we have in relationships with students sounds like not just good for people who are coming in with trauma, but for everybody. And, yes. and that gets and at another conversation about universal design and all that kind exactly. of stuff. I think the part is the humanity of students, right? Mm -hmm. Of being able to emphasize the humanity of students, but it's just repackaging the same good pedagogy that all of us have been doing. These types of frameworks are really helpful in being able for folks to put language to what they're, to what they're doing. It's a great way to end. People who invest in their pedagogy um, and having these terminologies to be able to talk with their colleagues about it and talk to their students about what's going on, all of that ultimately ends up with more conscious, thoughtful teaching. So That's right. thank you, Ms. Bud. That's fantastic. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming and talking about that. Thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Teaching Curve podcast is made available in video and audio only versions at the Professional Resource Center webpage of the International Studies Association. Audio versions can be found on all major podcast platforms. You can send feedback or suggestions for future interviews to teachingcurve at isonet.org and follow us on X at Teaching Curve. Thank you all for joining us again on the Teaching Curve. And remember, learn something every time you teach.